Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast really has grown out of one particular idea. The whole journey began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? Well, the answer seemed straightforward to me. I, th- I thought I knew the answer right off the top of my head, and I, I, I answered as I thought it would be. The, the Bible, of course, but I had to dig deeper. Where did the Bible come from? Who put it together? What books were in? What books were out? And how did that all get decided? Well, I began that deep dive, and it was then on that journey that I encountered Catholic theology, the Catholic faith, and the Catholic Church. It looms large in the history of Christianity, and, and there it was. And it was then when I began digging into what the Catholics actually believed and reading from actual Catholic sources, I realized what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about Catholicism, this whole time was based on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap, the gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I am joined by Dr. Brett Stockold, who is a Canadian, for one thing, which makes it a fantastic conversation. As you guys know listening to this podcast, when we have Canadians on the show, it's always a good time. And he is an expert on the Eucharist, the real presence, transubstantiation. And this conversation is tailor-made for evangelicals trying to understand what the Catholic Church believes about the Eucharist and the real presence and transubstantiation, and us as Catholics trying to understand and explain that to others. This is one of those big misunderstood things, both from within the Catholic Church and from without. So here we are to clarify those questions. And it's a really great deep dive from a fantastic perspective, explaining how evangelicals can understand the Eucharist. Now, we as Catholics can explain it better. I think you'll love this conversation. This conversation and all others are, of course, brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. I have a couple of new patrons to thank this month. Thank you, Robbie, for your support, and thank you, Chris, for your support as well. You guys and our other generous benefactors there at Patreon help to keep this show going and keep this show growing week after week, month after month. So thank you for your support. One-time donations can be made at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. And now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Brett Sockled on the Eucharist for Evangelicals. It's a fantastic conversation. Please listen and enjoy. Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Just a reminder, if you're listening on podcast, thank you. Uh, please leave a rating and review. Spotify now offers uh, to, to review podcasts. So hey, go on there and leave a review for this on Spotify. And, and thank you. If you're listening, we're also on YouTube as well. YouTube.com slash The Cordial Catholic. And if you're watching on YouTube, well, hey, we are obviously also on podcast. So check us out there. The Cordial Catholic, everywhere fine podcasts are found. 
This is going to be an absolute, uh, I don't know, barn burner is a good expression to use maybe this this week, because I'm joined, of course, by a fellow Canadian, uh, and whenever that happens on this show, uh, uh, strange, good, unusual, things are bound to happen, so uh, here we go. My guest this week is Dr. Brett Salkhead. He is uh, the Archdiocesan Theologian for the Archdiocese of Regina, Saskatchewan, in Canada, he has served for many years on the National Canadian Roman Catholic Evangelical Dialogue. He is the book review editor for the journal Pro Ecclesia, has written several books, is the co-host for the podcast Thinking Faith, and among his books is a fantastic book called Transubstantiation. I have it in my hand here. Theology, History, and Christian Unity. It's fantastic. Uh, Brett, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here, and Hello. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. It's uh, it's fun to meet you and uh, and do this together. It's a real thrill. And I mentioned before off, off the top there that whenever I have a Canadian guest on the show, uh, uh, strange things happen. We just apologize usually back and forth for the entire episode. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I don't know if listeners like that or not. They always say how nice this show is. How you know the, the name, the Court of the Catholic, is is that's the intention. But it's almost too nice when I have a fellow Canadian on the show. So I have gotten in trouble occasionally for being too agreeable. Yeah, so that could be it. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll try and find some disagreements here in this yeah, episode. Right. And I, I am pleased to say you are also my third guest from Saskatchewan, which is surprising because there are not a lot of people in Saskatchewan. We punch above our weight in church land. You yeah. know, uh, when I went away to theology school, there were professors whose family roots were Saskatchewan, lots of writers, um, evangelists, YouTube personalities. Uh, we, we, we do all right for ourselves out yeah. here, but we all leave. So yeah. most of the people, you know, originally from Saskatchewan, like your previous two guests yeah. aren't living and working here anymore. I was pretty lucky. I got, I, I went away to Toronto for grad school and was very fortunate that the Archbishop of Regina at the time invited me to come back and work for the archdiocese. It was during the, uh, the big, um, sort of crash in, um, humanities hiring in in the academy after the 2008 crash, which we've never recovered from in, in, in the humanities. Uh, and so there weren't a lot of academic jobs when I was finishing my PhD. And I got to come work and live, uh, you know, where my kids are near their grandparents and stuff like that. So, and where the weather is delightful. <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Very glad to have you in the show. Glad you're up here in Canada, in Saskatchewan. That's that's wonderful. We're going to have a good time, I think, in this episode. And this is a fantastic topic to uh, to talk about. I'm thinking of the audience for this show. I'm thinking of those non-Catholics, those new Catholics, those Catholics who want to dig deeper. And this is a perfect topic for, I think, all those those people listening to the show. And I want to start here. I want to ask you, I mean, what transubstantiation is and how the Catholic Church defines it. Because for me as an evangelical uh, convert to the Catholic faith, when I heard a term like that, the first thing I think of is, well, first of all, alarm bells go off. And I think of, okay, here's what I've always been warned about, right? The Catholic Church is, is taking philosophy or taking some weird ideas from from some weird place that's not the Bible or, or, or not not proper theology and applying to this weird thing. So, I mean, I didn't even know when I heard that term wh- what it meant. It sounded very strange, very foreign, very made up. And of course, uh, I had a lot of um, kind of angsty opposition to it when I, right. when I before I became Catholic. Of course, I looked into it and, and oh my gosh, it's it's... <laughs> 
It's mind-blowing, as, as you know, you've written a book about it. But can we start there? Right. What is transubstantiation? Yeah, so I'll give a technical definition, uh, just so we have our like operative terms in order. Uh, but, I, but I'm going to admit right at the front end that the technical definition is going to require explanation itself, right? And it's gonna, we're going to need to go into history because what you just said about, you know, where did this come from? Because it's not in the Bible. The word isn't in the Bible. Uh, and it doesn't show up, you know, in the first thousand years of church history. So where does it come from? So we'll have to do some history. But first, the technical definition. Uh, transubstantiation technically means that the substance of the bread or the wine, depending which one you're talking about, uh, at the consecration of the Eucharist becomes the substance of Christ's body in the case of the bread or the substance of Christ's blood in the case of the wine. Um, it also means that the accidents of those things, of bread and wine, are unchanged. Uh, accidents are the physical characteristics. What, what you Technically, it's what your senses can perceive. So we do not expect any, um, any instrument, whether it's your nose or your eyes, or a microscope or a mass spectrometer or anything else, to be able to discern a change in the physical attributes. That part of the definition is those don't change. Now, people want to ask about Eucharistic miracles, and, and that's, that's fine. But, but the point is, we're not claiming that they happen at every Mass, and if they don't happen, the consecration didn't work, right? At 99.9999999 something something percent of, of Eucharist, there's no change, and that's what we're talking about. If there's a Eucharistic miracle, that's a separate question. It's not what we mean by transubstantiation. So you shouldn't try to use them to, to prove it in a, in a way, right? Because that can create sort of false impressions. Now, Thomas Aquinas says very interestingly, he, he he's asking about uh, the miracles, and he says, yeah, yeah, they happen. You know, sometimes God gives miracles to increase our faith or, you know, for, for God's reasons. Um, and some of them happen in the things themselves, and some of them happen in your eyes. <laughs> and I think Thomas is being a little bit cheeky there because he recognizes that not every miracle claim is, is legit, and we shouldn't, we shouldn't put all our eggs in that basket. Because that's not what the that's not what the central claim is. That's a peripheral claim. We would still believe in Christ's real presence if there was not one Eucharistic miracle. I'm not saying there isn't one. I'm saying we would still believe in Christ's Eucharistic presence if there wasn't. Um, so, okay, that's the technical term that the substance changes and the accidents stay the same. Now, that's that begs a lot of question. Like I just told you, what accidents are? They're the physical attributes but what on earth is substance and why did the church feel any need to define things in this way right um and so if, if you don't mind we can do a little little history here right so in the early church um as is fairly evident from most people's readings of john john's gospel um as well as other passages in in the new testament um, and the fathers uh, of the church, it's pretty clear that the early church believes in what we can call real presence, right? That, that Christ is present in the Eucharist. And what do we mean by real presence? We mean that the presence there is a gift from God. It's God's action, and it's not you and me using our powers of human meaning making, which are formidable, by the way. They're not nothing. 
you know, if you consider like a, a, a national flag, well, where did it get its meaning? Well, because you and I agreed to call it something and treat it accordingly. And if someone burns it or tramples on it, uh, that arouses a lot of emotion. And it's not just nothing. Like human meaning making is a real thing that matters. The same with a wedding ring or all kinds of things you can you could do in your own life, you know. But what we're saying is as 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 formidable as that capacity that humans has have might be, that that's not enough to account for what happens in the Eucharist. What happens in the Eucharist is an act of God, and it's God's gift of himself to us. It's not something we could make. And this accords with the, our whole picture of salvation in general, right? We can't save ourselves. We must be receptive. We're the receptive partners in this relationship. And so in, in real presence, what we're saying is this is an act of God. This is a gift of God, not something we do ourselves. So the church believes this for hundreds of years without a whole lot of concern for philosophy and fine uh, definitions and distinctions and all that kind of stuff. Um, until a new philosophical sort of milieu uh, is engaged in Western Europe in the starts around the ninth century, when people start to ask something like, well, is it real or is it just a symbol? Now, if you had asked the fathers of the church this question, they would have said, yes, <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't a problem for them. Of course, it's a symbol. Um, and if you read the Baltimore Catechism, if you're a traditional Catholic, you'll see that that something being a sign is part of the definition of a sacrament. So, of course, it's a symbol. But now Catholics get nervous while we can't say it's a symbol because we've bought into this false dichotomy that if it's a symbol, well, it's not real. And it was this question, is it a symbol or is it real, that led to a big problem in the medieval church. And both groups kind of doubled down, and the realistic version got like pretty close to cannibalism in some articulations. And the symbolic version veered into this, well, it's just something that we do in our own minds, right? And the church needed to sort of regain its equilibrium and be able to assert in this new context that it's really real. It's, it's, it's real at the level of God being the actor real. And at the same time, it's not cannibalism. It's not, um, it's not sort of grossly carnal. It's logic is, is strictly sacramental. Um, and it was in this context that the language of substance emerges as a candidate for being able to talk about this. Now, why is substance valuable here? Substance is a way, and the church had used it earlier. It used it in the Christological debates, you, you know, in the creed, consubstantial with the Father, right? The, 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 the idea, although it, that, was in, that was in Greek and then gets translated into Latin, now we're working in Latin in the later Middle Ages, but the idea behind substance is it is the deepest reality of a thing, and it is what is present not just to their senses, but it's what's present to the intellect. That's the definition Thomas is working with. And so he says there's a, there's a deep reality um, that is deeper than what your senses experience. So think about um, your encounter with some sugar. You know, your senses don't encounter sugar as such. Your senses encounter whiteness, granularity, sweetness, a, a, a whole constellation of sensory experiences. 
And you know how to tell the difference between salt and sugar. You can't tell it by looking, but you and you can't tell it really by touching, but you can by tasting. So you know how to do these distinctions. Now, what is it that your mind recognizes when it when it says, you know, ah, that's sweet, it's not salt, it's sugar. You are, your senses already saw that it was granular and white and sweet, but it's your intellect that says that's sugar. And it's that, that cohesive idea that undergirds any of the physical apparatus that, that we're talking about when we say substance. And the tradition finds that substance will actually do the work it needs at this time in church history to say this is really, really, really real, <laughs> but it's not a physical transformation. It's not a cannibalistic. It's not a grossly carnal kind of thing. It operates according to the logic of sacraments, which means it needs to respect the sign value. All those things needed to be done if we wanted to be in continuity with scripture and the church fathers and substance allowed us to do that work at a given time in, in church history. So that's why it emerges when it does and how it does. Um, and the Catholic church thinks it did a pretty good job of the job that needed doing at the time. And so it's become a kind of touchstone for us for thinking about real presence ever since. That's such a great definition. And thank you for that history lesson. That was fantastic. What I, what I encountered when I was, you know, looking into the Catholic church, which you touched on there was this, this witness in the early church. Like you, you read, and of course you go back and you go back to to the the gospels and the, and the story of the last supper and then, and Paul's writing, we're talking about uh, Christ saying, "This is my body. This is my blood." Um, at, you know, Asks and famously in John six, we, we must do these things, and he's speaking in in quite quite plain terminology, right? And the, and the the church fathers, I was I was shocked as an evangelical to encounter these church fathers talking about this really is Christ's blood. This really is <laughs> that was that was shocking to me to to read that. So we're talking about real presence. We're talking about that. And then it just kind of becoming just more defined as it needed to be defined later on in in church history as this thing called transubstantiation. But we're talking about the same the same thing, right? Right, right. So as a theologian, I would make a distinction between real presence, which I would say is the content of um, the deposit of faith, and transubstantiation, which is theology. Right. And theology is faith-seeking understanding. So what transubstantiation is, is faith in the real presence, seeking understanding in a given context where that understanding had become obscured, right? Uh, by, the, by the language and the philosophical categories and the questions where people were bringing. So theology has never done its work because a given claim of the faith can be, can be clarified more in a new context. And that's what happened with Thomas Aquinas. It led up, they, there were precursors to Thomas. Thomas is really the, the sort of capstone of the development of the tradition around transubstantiation. Um, but around that time, 11th, 12th century, you have um, a, a cultural imperative that that is forcing the church to, to develop more clarity on real presence and transubstantiation is what we come up with um, but but real presence has been there all along we just have we just have new categories for thinking and talking about it in, in this cultural situation 
Ah, that's a, that's a fantastic point. You know, I have a I have a good friend who, uh, even Douglas, the same actually same church that I that I converted out of, who is exploring orthodoxy and has been for a while. And he always said to me, uh, I wouldn't be Catholic because they take all the mystery out of out of the Eucharist, right? They define all these terms and aren't be orthodox. They they leave things just kind of hanging out there and, and and appreciate the mystery, right? But 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 again, you know, we know Orthodox and Catholics agree on. On the real presence, I think that that's safe to say. Maybe right. where we differ is on how we define our understanding of it. Maybe is what is what he was getting at in that context. Maybe it's 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 an important point because the, see the East never had a major Eucharistic controversy, right? So they never had to explain it. it. The problem is once the question has been raised, once someone says, "No, look, it's just a symbol," uh, well, then that demands an answer. And that 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 happens in the Middle Ages, and it happens again at the time of the Reformation, um, and and then other uh, Western uh, Christian communities, Lutherans and Reformed Christians, have to figure out how to respond to the same challenge. Uh, now Zwingli, uh, one of the Swiss reformers, is saying basically the same thing that Berengarius, who was who was sort of the main antagonist in the earlier uh, episode. It's saying the same thing. He's saying, like, just just look, it, it can't mean what you think it means. That's nonsense. Uh, it can't really be him. Look, I can explain it to you as a symbol, and it's clear as day. Like, it's very straightforward. Uh, that must, despite the graphic language of Scripture and the, the um, unproblematic acceptance we see of that in the fathers and whatever else, uh, it's just it just can't be right. And, and look, I, I just have a very clean, straightforward understanding that makes sense for everyone. Um, and, and just like Catholic theology in the uh, Middle Ages responded to Berengarius, Luther in particular, and Calvin in a different way, but Luther in particular just said, no way, man. Like, the Bible is clear on this. Th- this can't be right. And then, and then Luther had to, but then Luther used to criticize the Catholics. He said, oh, they got all this philosophy and they're adding Aristotle to this. And they did it. Why can't they just take the, the words of scripture at face value, you know? And then when the Zwinglians challenged him and said, look, if you take scripture at face value, you're, that you're spouting nonsense. It's, it's obviously not meant literally. And what Luther had to do is exactly what the Catholic tradition had to do 300 years earlier. They didn't have to take the mystery out of it. They did have to art- articulate it in a way to show that it wasn't nonsense. They had to show that it was a coherent claim. And the East has never been forced into that in the same way that the West has been. And so that's, that's you know, there is value in, in the Eastern approach of respecting the mystery. But I would say that transubstantiation properly understood doesn't over-explicate the mystery, it properly locates it. It protects it from false, um, uh, it shows how questions that are aimed to pick it apart don't land uh, because they've misunderstood something. And so it, it so in, in showing that, it actually protects the mystery, but it doesn't actually um, imagine some sort of celestial or clandestine mechanics by which God is working that like, that's not what it is. You know, it's, it's a careful articulation of real presence in the face of claims that, that that's an incoherent thing to say. Yeah. Because for sure for me, one of the prejudices that I had 
before I looked looked I looked into it seriously, right? One of those kind of things I kind of inherited in kind of the the Pentecostal uh, charismatic non denominational milieu that I that I swam in as an evangelical was this prejudice that Catholics had this formula for for communion, right? The the priest does this this and this and this transforms into this, and then and this is some kind of mathematical or scientific equation that just kind of plugs something into, right? It's, it's kind of how it seemed. From the outside, okay, I began to investigate that and realized, well, no, there's there's a heck of a lot of mystery taking place in and and beauty and power happening in the mass and in these different these different sacraments, but it it, it could appear that way to an outsider that it is a, a kind of formula that you just do right. And I think I think one of the uh, I don't want I don't want to cut you off, but one of the most beautiful things that I I heard I don't know even who said this before said this to me, but to realize that what's be you know when that when that transformation happens, right? When, when transubstantiation is, is is taking place, for lack of better terminology, is the words of Christ on the lips of that priest when, when that's happening. So it's not if there is a magical formula, it's doing what Christ asked us to do, and right, right, right. and saying these things. So I think that's kind of that that's interesting. That again, mystery and depth in there, right? But I see how it could appear to be this kind of formula like from the outside right right well two things on that the the first is uh i think there's something that protestants can really appreciate about a catholic approach here it, yeah it can look formulaic uh you know you, you you do the words you you do the do the actions and you say the words right and and the thing happens but what's underlying this catholic liturgical sensibility is actually something protestants are pretty keen to want to highlight, which is, um, it's not your, uh, it's not your actions. It's God's work. And so the liturgy by, by having a very specific structure where we just follow along and do what we're told, um, and, and God shows up, it's, it's different than if you had to like work out a liturgy every week to try to make it work. Or, or if it was, a, if it was, a function of this human meaning making, well, then it's as successful as, as you and I in our human meaning making. And so the validity of the Eucharist comes then to depend on human effort. And Protestants should immediately be like, whoa, whoa, that can't be right. Like <laughs> that doesn't fit with the picture of salvation that we know to be true. Right. So the, the Catholic liturgical emphasis on God's primacy as actor actually lines up really nicely with the Protestant emphasis on God's primacy in 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 our salvation. Right. So um, that's the one thing. And the other thing, what was the other thing? I forget what the other thing was. So. <laughs> We'll, we'll we'll see if it comes back uh, later, but but no, that was I, I think there's something for Protestants there. You know, um, we don't want to be liturgical Pelagians where we think we need to work at our liturgy and do it so that our um, efforts and attitudes and whatever else are the determining factor in whether or not it works. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I <laughs> I love that. Okay, I want to ask you, and you've already hinted on this a little bit, though, uh, but I think it's worth asking. So when I was an evangelical, right, I, I mentioned I kind of came from like a Pentecostal. I, I actually became Christian at the age of 15. I was I was saved, became went to a Pentecostal church. My friends went there. Uh, later on, kind of slipped into a non-denominational church and churches, and I inherited this idea that communion, that you know, we do that maybe once a month, uh, was merely what was a symbol. It was only a symbol, right? And I actually, 
you know, when the when the pastor would would read from, say, Corinthians, where Paul talks about the Last Supper, I I, I swear to you, even though we were a Bible believing church, he would add in, you know, the word like a, a symbol of my body or something, and and I always, <laughs> I I always thought like. How how weird is this that we are this this Bible alone, very Bible focused, and our beliefs come from the Bible, but we can't even read the Bible in this situation <laughs> accurately. Like we're adding words to it, right? It struck me as very strange. So I wonder if you can give us a brief a brief history lesson of of how I got to there. Like where do we go if this real presence was what the the church believed for so long? And then mm-hmm. transubstantiation being that kind of response to, to how we understand this, how this actually works. How did I get to a place where we we see it and saw it as a, as a once a month thing we do, and 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 just a symbol? Right. Yeah. No. That's that's interesting. So I mean, we've seen some of the history. You know, yeah. even before the Reformation, there's people in Western Europe saying, "Well, this claim is just incoherent." let me offer you a straightforward symbolic interpretation that we should all be able to agree, you know, on. And this, this comes up in the reformation, but it's not at the time of the reformation. It's not the loudest voice. Uh, Luther is uh, a very strong proponent of real presence and Calvin in a different way. And, and, and maybe to a lesser degree. Um, But those are the two big names and they both believe in real presence. Now, Zwingli, who's less important, I mean, he's important, but he's not Luther or Calvin, uh, and and others, but Zwingli's the big name, um, proposed this purely symbolic uh, interpretation, which has come to dominate not only Protestantism, but as even, um, you know, many Catholics would be sympathetic to it, right? And so, how does it, how does it, it wasn't even, you know, Catholics like to blame everything in the Reformation and say, you know, you'll, you'll hear Catholics who blame Luther for loss of belief in real presence. And they're like, they've never read Luther because that's, that's not a workable hypothesis. But, but something happened uh, between the Reformation and now that made Zwingli's um, proposal just common sense for like most people. Right. And, and I would suggest that we basically live in a, in a sort of um, desacramentalized world, right? So we no longer imagine as our medieval and patristic forebears did that sort of creation is just charged with the grandeur of God and creation is the way in which God communicates God's love and God's grace to us. I'll, I'll, like the whole prerequisite of a sacramental worldview is basically gone. And if that's the case then real presence becomes not uh, what we would want to say, which is a sort of exemplification of God's and, 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 and intensification of God's basic relationship with us through created reality. But instead it becomes a kind of arbitrary magic trick. And if that's what it is, uh, and it doesn't fit within our basic worldview, then you're going to have a handful of people who sort of, believe hard and hold on tight because they think that's what faithful people do, uh, whether or not they themselves actually have this, you know, sacramental worldview. But then for the vast majority of people who live in that culture, Zwingli's proposal that it's just like, well, the the symbolic thing just makes sense, guys. I mean, just think about it. It's going to be immensely appealing to the point where, as you describe it, 
people who consider themselves Bible-believing Christians have to consciously tweak the words yeah. of, of the scripture to make it fit. And, and I, so, so now what's the reverse of this, I think, is then real presence and transubstantiation as part of this becomes a kind of um, way of articulating a sacramental worldview and a kind of challenge to a desacramentalized universe. I think when we say real presence, even that is a challenge because what do modern people mean by real? They mean physical. And so if you say something is real, 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 like more real than anything you know, um, and there's no physical change that you can discern whatsoever, they say, well, that's crazy. And you say, actually, I think reality is deeper than the physical. I believe in things like truth. I believe in the soul. I believe in God. I, be I believe in all kinds of things that aren't physical. And I think they're actually more real. Yeah. The physical is transient, right? I mean, here today, gone tomorrow, right? The immaterial things that are the deeper realities, like a soul, uh, are, are eternal, you know, and I'm not saying every immaterial thing is eternal, but immaterial things have a capacity for eternity that physical things don't. We think that's the most real kind of thing there can be. And so so in a in a in a world where real basically means physical, uh, Zwingli's idea is going to be the most obvious, straightforward uh, kind of answer. Uh, but then when you get digging in the scriptures and not just the scriptures, but as you said, when you get into the church fathers and you say, well, this is weird because <laughs> why do all the people who've believed before me think this thing that, that in my worldview is kind of crazy nonsense. Like, what is that? You know? Um, and then you have to figure out, well, maybe they had a picture of the world that I need to sort of learn how to take into myself. And maybe that would enrich my, my appreciation of the gospel and, and even, I would even say my appreciation of reality. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the reformers too. And that for me was very eye opening. I was part of this non-denominational church that met in a rec center for a number of years. And we had a chance to move into a Lutheran church and share the building with this congregation, this aging congregation of Lutherans. And so we kind of came in and we'd, we'd, they'd have their service on a Sunday at 11, ours would be at nine. And so we'd share the same building, um, different congregations, different, different beliefs, but all kinds of things. But one of the things that struck me when I, when I, we had a little tour, I was part of the kind of the, 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 the leadership team at the time. And my wife and I had a tour of the building and went back into this strange little room with all these robes that the Lutheran uh, minister would wear. And it was also strange and foreign to us. And there was this, this sink in the corner of this room and the, the guy even with the tour goes, oh, yeah, this is the sink, and, and this pipe here goes straight into the ground, not into the sewer system. And I kind of went, like, okay, well, that's weird. Like, what's why? Right? Just so, you know, hubris. What, what, that's, you guys are really strange. Like, what's going on? And they mentioned, well, this is, this is for the, the, the consecrated wine. We pour that down here if there's any extra because it can't go into the sewer system because it's, it's the blood of Christ. And I kind of went, what? <laughs> you know, so that was my first kind of encounter. And I wasn't even remotely Catholic at the time. But that was my first encounter with uh, this idea that these, you know, even the, even the Lutherans believed in this idea of, of communion being more than the kind of just mere grape juice symbol that I had as an evangelical, right? It was my first encounter there. So 
that was eye-opening. And, and you mentioned, of course, the, the reformers, the, the big ones, Calvin and uh, Luther, believed in the real presence, not maybe the same definition that we'd use as Roman Catholics, but they believed in the real presence, right? Yeah, absolutely. Luther, without a doubt. I mean, he was vehement on this point. Uh, well, he's vehement on most <laughs> on most <laughs> points. Luther is just a vehement guy. Um, yeah. But Calvin, actually, Calvin gets a bad rap. Some Catholics think that Calvin thinks that, that it's it's purely symbolic. And it's, it's tricky to read Calvin because he was arguing. It, Calvin looks different depending on who he's arguing with. So he was arguing with some Lutherans later who had a very, uh, uh, um, what's the word I want? I mean, from a Catholic point of view, they were overshooting the mark even. They were, they were going along the road of this medieval tradition that transubstantiation tried to m modify by getting, uh, you know, almost cannibalistic in their language and that kind of thing. And so when Calvin is pushing against them, he sounds like he might be saying it's only a symbol, um, but when Calvin is writing against the Swiss and, and the followers of Zwingli, uh, he sounds like a Catholic, you know, so it, de it depends who he's talking to. Um, but uh, it, I have a chapter on Calvin. It's the it's the last chapter of the book before the conclusion. And one of the things that I discovered when I was researching it is um, scholar after scholar after scholar, I think in the first two pages, I have footnotes to like 10 or 12 different people who note the structural similarities between Calvin's articulation of real presence and Thomas Aquinas. Uh, it's really remarkable when you start digging into it, the way, but, but then when you, if, if you consider the history and you think, well, they're both students of St. Augustine, then it's not that surprising, you know, um, but Catholics have been taught, you know, somehow that Calvin's this like arch, uh, symbolist, you know, when it comes to the Eucharist, and it's not the case, you know, there are, there are things about Calvin that I would challenge him on. And I do in the book, I, I think, uh, I think he loses the handle, uh, you know, once or twice uh, in his, in his jousting with the Lutherans and does let slip things that are, you know, maybe interpretable as merely symbolic, but I don't think that's, I think you take those in isolation, you won't see him properly. Yeah. So, uh, that is remarkable to me, right? That the the major Reformation traditions are really closer or pretty close to the Catholic definition. Certainly, believe in this idea that the early church believed in in the real presence, and how they technically define that is is can get pretty close to how Catholics technically define that, but very much lost in this large swath of evangelical Christianity, right? And I think. Right. For me, again, I go back to that that sink encounter of the sink in in the uh, in that sacristy there in that Lutheran church. I had no idea as an evangelical that these neighbors of ours were sharing the same building. You know, we're not very far apart, Lutherans and and this non-denominational church physically, and even in a lot of the things we believe theologically. But here's this major thing that we really I didn't even know they believed this, but we're right. pretty near neighbors in terms of Protestant Christians, right? Well, and. And I love the sync example because it shows you how much your actions communicate, yeah. right? So one of the things we, we like, what do you do with leftover Eucharist? Well, if you throw it in the garbage or if it ends up in the sewer, you are saying something. Whether you mean to say that thing or not, 
doesn't change the fact that you're saying something, right? And so when when they said to you, like, this doesn't go into the sewer, I can see how that would make a real impression because that's like, that's making a real claim, like changing the plumbing in your building based on your theology is making it, you're like, you're standing up for something, right? You're making a claim. And, and as I said earlier, you know, the Zwinglian option is, is easy in our contemporary world. Um, doing something like changing the plumbing in your building is a way of taking a stand, not only on this particular theological point, but on a whole worldview. Right. And, and I think, that's, I mean, this is maybe a little bit of an aside, but that's one reason why liturgy matters so much, Yeah. right? Because yeah. liturgy is where you make all kinds of, you don't even know half the statements you're making in a given liturgy, uh, you know, but if you stop and think like, what does it mean that I'm on my knees? What does it mean that I bless myself with this water? What you like, all those kinds of things uh, are, are statements because uh, the world is full of liturgies that are trying to, set our priorities and tell us what we should love and what is worth sacrificing for. And, uh, you know, all, all we do this all the time. All the great political movements know how to use liturgy. Uh, the military knows how to use liturgy. Professional sports knows how to use liturgy. Like, they, uh, oh my goodness, the advertising industry, do they ever know how to use <laughs> liturgy, right? And so like our liturgy is almost a counter culture. It's a counter culture, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things you said earlier, too, was the idea that the sacramental worldview and the importance of that. I mean, again, I go back to this idea of as an evangelical, I didn't know what the word I, I I've said before in the show and people may have may, I want to always repeat myself every single episode. But I had a good friend who was on this journey with me for a while looking into the Catholic faith. And he said to me, you know what? I don't know if I can live the sacramental life. And I go, what's a sacrament? Because I was so naive to Right, and we were both evangelicals on this journey, looking, you know, reading Catholic theology and and whatnot. And I had no idea what a sacrament was because it was just so foreign to me. And I I think that reframing the understanding of what the Eucharist is and, and communion and real presence in terms of this larger sacramental worldview is it's I don't know it's challenging to express sacraments to to a non-Catholic Christian. And that's why I was so confused by it when I first encountered it. But that's really part of the thing, right? Is this whole worldview that's really different from that offered by somebody who goes, yes, it's a symbol. It's an easy way right. out. But you're, but you know, to encounter that worldview is much more complicated, larger, but gosh, to get drawn into that worldview and start seeing the world through a sacramental lens is, is pretty faith changing. Right. And well, and you can, you can try to articulate it, uh, you know, uh, you know, on a podcast using words and you can have some success <laughs> with that. But I mean, part of the point of a sacramental worldview is that it takes more than words to communicate truth. Right. That, and so the best way to understand it is to start practicing it. Yeah. Um, but, but I would also say at the level of words, you know, what we can do here, um, I would say like, there's, there's, it's, it's deeply biblical. I mean, starting with the creation narratives, but especially with the incarnation, you know, sacrament, the, the logic of sacraments is an extension of the logic of the incarnation, right? Like, God, you know, think of it when Jesus spitting in the mud, you know, and rubbing stuff on people's eyes like that, like that is so sacramental, you know, that that God comes to us through like mud, like, you know, um, that, that the material order, which God created as good and which was ordered to our good is the place 
where he approaches us because we we can't escape time and space. We're stuck. Um, but God is not bound by time and space. So if we're going to encounter God, it has to be because God enters time and space. And if you enter time and space, that's sacramental. Like you're, you're going to be in the mud. Uh, you know, I love it in the baptism of the Jordan, uh, you know, because theologically there's a question mark there, right? Like he doesn't need baptism. He's not a sinner, but he's in the mud. Like, like he's right. He's, he's down in it to me that it's, it's, it's showing the, the, the descent, you know, uh, in, in its, um, uh, everyday sort of nuts and bolts of what it means to come down and be one of us. Right. Uh, and then with the sacraments, it's the same. It's, 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 it's not mud in this case, but it's, it's really basic stuff. It's bread and wine. It's water. It's oil. It's words of forgiveness. Um, it's it's the basic stuff of life, uh, and that's where God meets us. And so, so Eucharist isn't. It's not a magic trick that's sort of arbitrary. It's like, no, if you don't eat, you die. That's how it works, right? We, you know, Catholics. I, I, I. Um, one of the things I, I like to remind us, you know, serious Catholics like to say, well, it's a sacrifice. And every once in a while, they'll say not a meal. And I'll say, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I appreciate the pushback from people who downplayed the sacrifice element and played up the meals element. But there's this sense among some Catholics that like calling it a meal is not really serious enough. You know, I'm like, Try going a week without one and then tell me how serious it is. Like, you know what I mean? Um, but, and the other thing about meal and sacrifice is um, every meal is a sacrifice. Yeah. Everything on your plate, except salt and water. I can't think of any other exceptions. Everything on your plate, except salt and water died so that you could eat it. Uh, you know, like meal yeah. and sacrifice are not like opposed ideas. They're intrinsically uh, related ideas. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Can we touch for a second on the idea of sacrifice? Because that yeah. I think comes into, and that's a huge part of you know, your book and this idea uh, as well. But maybe this strange notion—I don't know—it isn't taken seriously anymore, really, because this wasn't an issue for me, and I have not met people who this has been an issue for in, in a while. But there was this. This certainly at the Reformation, there was this movement that what the Catholics were doing is some kind of sacrifice and Christ died once for us. So how can right. you say he's really present there? How can you say that you're sacrificing something in, in the mass? That, that again is that, um, is, is the accusation that we're, we're doing some kind of Old Testament weird thing up there, right? Like you already, you already had the priest wearing these kind of strange robes and the, the, this thing called the priesthood, which also kind of feels Old Testament. And then like right. you're, you're doing a sacrifice, right? So, right. So, so how – explain for a second to us – in a second, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a good joke. What, yeah, what right. do we mean by, by sacrifice? How is it not that thing? Right. Well, so I mean – Catholics are going to agree a hundred percent with Protestants that there's one sacrifice yeah. for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is both the victim and the priest in that sacrifice. Um, so, so a Catholic theology of priesthood uh, is, is um, there's, there's one priest. That's, that's the overarching idea. And then within that, there are a priestly people so we agree with Protestants that on, on the priesthood of all believers, right? So when we're baptized, we're baptized priest, prophet, and king. So the first layer, Jesus is 
the one priest. The second layer, um, the, the church is a priestly people, and we are all baptized priests. And within that, there's a third layer of a kind of um, a, a priesthood that is dependent on those first two uh, and, and totally subordinate. In, in a way to them. I don't mean juridically either. Of course, a pastor has some juridical powers in his, in his parish that a lay person doesn't have, but theologically it's, it's underneath these other two layers and it is to um, manifest for us. Cause it, it is also a sacrament, right? Ordination to the Holy orders is a sacrament. And in that sacrament, what is present to us is Christ, the priest. So you mentioned earlier, the words of consecration being Christ's words, right? There are times, the words of consecration are the most famous ones, but also don't forget um, uh, words of absolution at the end of reconciliation. You're hearing the words of Christ when the priest speaks to you there, right? Uh, So that would be another example. We have a sacramental presence of Christ the priest in our priesthood, but they're they're not independent. Uh, They don't get, like, they are priests of Christ, and that's that. And you can't be ordained a priest if you're not first a lay person who's baptized. You don't get ordained if you're not baptized. That's not how it works, right? That's another example of how it falls under those layers I've been describing. Okay, so that's that's a little bit about priesthood. But so we would agree with Protestants on that. There's one sacrifice. Uh, there's one priest. But what is available to us at the Eucharist? What are we able to participate in? Um, I think if, if we have a really, um, you know, penal substitutionary atonement, if we have a strict Protestant view of penal substitutionary atonement, there's not much room to participate in Christ's sacrifice. It's just done on your behalf and it's over with, and it gets applied to you. Um, uh, but that's never been the Catholic view of atonement. Um, it's a Catholic view of atonement is much more participatory. And so imagine it's something like this. We've been called to, to offer ourselves fully in this life, and we fail all the time. That's, that's, that's one definition of sin, is our failure to give of ourselves when we're called, because we're selfish, right? And it starts in the garden, and it goes all through the Old Testament. And one, one way of reading the story of the Old Testament is the failure of Israel to offer God proper sacrifice, Right. And so you have the prophetic tradition that says, yeah, slaughter all the bulls and goats that you want. I want a contrite heart. Right. But we can never do it. We, we never we can have some contrition, but we're, we're never we never get to this point where we're always perfectly contrite or that we never, you know, sin anymore. Um, so what we're offered is is an opportunity to participate in a sacrifice that we could have never made for ourselves. We don't make a new sacrifice, but the sacrifice that Christ offered on our behalf is made available to us for our participation in it. Uh, and I let me let me zoom out even wider now to a more cosmic lens. You know the line that says the the lamb sacrificed before the foundation of the world, right? Yeah, yeah. He was killed like before history. He was a sacrificed lamb. Now what the heck is that? That's weird, <laughs> right? Um, the sacrifice we see of Jesus on the cross is a kind of weird, you might even say distorted, but still a picture of the Trinity. Um, it, but what kind of a picture is it? Why is it distorted? It's what the Trinity looks like when it's transposed onto a world of sin. 
But that self-giving of that Jesus is manifesting on the cross is the same self-giving of the Father and the Son and the Spirit in the Trinity before creation, right? This is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, right? And so what, what are we participating in in the Mass is the triune life, which is, uh, which is sacrificial, but in, in the Trinity, that sacrifice isn't painful, it's just the way things are. And you might you might get a glimpse of that, you know, in your marriage or caring for an infant or something where you where you sacrifice and there's and and the pain you would expect of sacrifice is just not there because you're just you're just in perfect communion with this person and you want to meet their needs and you know whatever. So we're in the in the mass we're participating in the triune life of God, but what's the way into the triune life of God for sinners? only the cross of Christ. And we get a chance to participate in it because we could, but we could never do it on our own. So the Protestant critique that, you know, you guys shouldn't be doing that because you can't do it. Well, in, in a way that's right. We can't, yeah, yeah. Uh, but we, we show up because God has promised to do it and we can sort of ride the coattails. You know, we can, we're, we're the adopted brothers and sisters of the son, right? We're, we're not, we're not, the, we're not the son proper <laughs> in the same way, but, but we we get adopted into this relationship. And, and that's what Catholics mean when we call the Eucharist a sacrifice. It's not, it's not a new sacrifice. We're not killing him again because God's angry. By the way, we didn't, he wasn't even killed the first time because God was angry. That's <laughs> That we could talk about that again. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 humans who are the the ones who demand blood, not God. Um, but that we can talk about it maybe more atonement another time. But with reference to the Eucharist, maybe I'll I'll pause there. Yeah, I think that's fantastic. And again, the the idea. The idea of, of Catholics and this exchange, this this math equation, this scientific kind of formula that they you do and this this thing happens to the the bread and the wine, I think that's extended sometimes. Then oh, Catholics just go and do this thing, and that act magically makes them a better person or 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 it helps them to enter heaven or something like. There's again this. Uh, and I think it just comes from the, the unusual trappings of the of the ritual of the mass that I think for me it was, was very foreign. I think for a lot of you in Juggles is is very foreign. It looks like a ritual, therefore it must be a formula that's doing something that that's making this thing happen. And then this Catholic gets this thing, and then they have a certain amount of grace or a certain amount of forgiveness. Like it all becomes very rigid and mathematical. Mm-hmm. Does that does that that makes sense? And that's not the case, of course. But does that make sense? Yeah. Well, and Catholics can give the wrong impression, right? We can, we can present it in, in, you know, almost mathematical terms. And there, I mean, there are, when we're, when we're talking about this stuff, we're using analogies and metaphor and sometimes math can, can serve as a useful analogy or metaphor for something. But if you push it too far, here's the thing. Anytime this is true in theology, especially, but it's true in life in general, recognize when you're using an analogy and recognize the limits of your analogy, because as soon as you forget that the analogy you're using is an analogy, you're going to make mistakes. And, and I, you know, so I think, you know, here's a very, the most mathematical Catholic example I can imagine is the years in purgatory, right? You get this many years in purgatory. Well, of course, if we think about it, we know that once you're dead, you're not subject to years or time at all in the same way as a person who's living in history is. So years in purgatory can't be anything but analogical. 
And maybe at this stage, it obscures more than it reveals and needs to be retired. That doesn't mean that the Catholics who use that language were wrong or bad. It just means that whatever they were using it to communicate might be better communicated with different metaphors today. You know, um, but we, we can Catholics, we can give this impression of like, you know, check the boxes, show up, do the thing, get the grace, you know, like it's like a drive through <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, and of course, that's not what the church wants of us. But we, but, but I would say, you know, recognize on the one hand that people like life is hard, and sometimes that's better than nothing. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, show up, showing up is better than not showing up, and maybe someday something will click. You know, just leave that little crack open for God to work, even if it's you know misconceived or poorly articulated or whatever. Uh, let's not judge, you know, brothers and sisters too harshly. And on and, and the other thing I would say is, you know, Protestants or anyone else who wants to criticize Catholicism for ritualism uh, should just pay attention to their own lives because humans do rituals all the time. Uh, you know, even groups that think they're not ritualistic at all, just just watch how humans live. And they, they we we need regularity. We need pattern recognition. We need like these are the things that we use to orient ourselves and make sense of the world. And so um, is it, is it good if we can always be really intentional about what we're doing? Yeah, that's great. I don't live in a world where I can always be super intentional about what I'm doing. I have to pray with kids at bedtime (laughs) and I have to, and I'm getting interrupted and, and you know, there's like crashing and things are happening. And like, it's really easy to just say like, I, I give up. I'm never praying with kids again at bedtime because it doesn't mean anything because we're not being really intentional mm-hmm. and pious mm-hmm. and whatever else. And then I have to tell myself, you know what is probably worth more than any intentionality I can muster up during this or that emergency is my kids are going to know that prayer mattered because we made it a priority every night. Right. And like, so I, like, yes, ritual can have a downside, but, but, I, I I wouldn't write it off too quickly. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I, and I, you know, in my younger years, and maybe many are, are here, whether it's through age or or spiritual age, which can be different things, of course. You know, I would I would have seen. I had friends in high school who were Catholic who. I, I saw it at the punk rock shows, right? They're the guys who were smoking and drinking out back. Always the Catholic kids, right? I, I make a joke that if you, you wanted to buy drugs, you'd know where to get it. And it was the Catholic school, right? The Catholic high school. Those guys were the guys who knew where all the drugs were. But, and it, you know, in those, in those days, I, I became evangelical at the age of 15. So all those guys, I, I was kind of rallying against, like, oh, yeah, those Catholics, they don't, they don't believe this, this, or this. They're not living out their faith. But, you know, like you say, you you grow up and you mature and you realize that, yeah, just, just showing up sometimes is good. And we should applaud that. Even if we don't understand the, the, the thing they're doing to, to worship or at, from the outside, right. Or we don't understand what's going on in that, in that ritual. I, I had a um, fellow Canadian, actually, uh, Randy Boyagoda, who's a, uh, an author, Catholic, uh, Catholic author on the show last week, actually. And, and he said something similar, you know, when I asked him about these kind of cultural Catholics that, that you encounter, he goes, well, yeah, you know, but they're there, like they're there, whether they know what's happening in the mass and have really worked it all out and are, are intentionally doing these things, they're still there. And, and that's, and that's something, and we shouldn't disparage that. Right. And I think, you know, you're saying a similar thing there, right? There's, there's something to be said for, 
for God working and, and, and grace and, and, you know, coming to meet us, even if we're just there and, you know, and maybe not super intentional all right. the times. There's, there's, there's something in that, right. That I think is, right. is, is very powerful. Yeah. And I'm not arguing that we should all stay there, you know, uh, yeah, of course. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, but, but like, it's, 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 it's amazing when you reflect after years, you know, I don't know if you're in touch with any of those guys you knew in high school. Yeah. Um, but you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them have had a serious encounter with yeah, God at yeah, some point absolutely. between then and now, you know, uh, and, and giving God that opportunity to work. Right. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I don't want my own kids selling drugs just because they're, <laughs> they're Catholic. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not endorsing any of that kind of stuff, but, but I don't want to, I don't want to just make those kinds of surface judgments either. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a rabbit hole. Okay, yeah. I, I wondered, I a couple questions left for you. Uh, and this one is, I don't, I don't know, interesting to me. Because there there's there seems to be some kind of common ground here. I mean, I, I'm thinking back to my evangelical days. I'm thinking of other evangelicals that, that I know, that I, that I speak to, have encountered and, and, and interacted with on, on YouTube and through the podcast, who would go, yeah, I believe in the real presence of Christ. And then I go, what you you do, <laughs> you know? And they might do communion still once a month or or more, and it might it might be grape juice and and bread, but they they would argue that yeah they understand you know in quotes the real presence of Christ is is in that communion, and that can mean I think all kinds of things, all kinds of people because it's it's a term that we're we're applying to something. What kind of common ground do you think is in there for those people who would say, yeah, I believe in a real presence, but don't come from a tradition that really has has worked it out like the Catholic Church has in this thing called transubstantiation, but are, just, are, are, just, are seeing something in the language of the Bible, the language of Christ, and, and seeing, you know, there, there is, there are words there that look like Christ should be really there, right, don't right. know how to, are, don't, don't have a tradition to draw from. Maybe I can put it that way. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you, you sort of half answered the question because I think that the, <laughs> the real thing that's in common is a commitment to the words of scripture, right? So if you've got an evangelical who doesn't have, you know, a, an ecclesial tradition or a theological tradition to help him or her articulate it, but they think, well, something's got to be going on here. Cause just look at, look at the words, like, something's going on and maybe maybe they've read more than the bible maybe they've read some some of the fathers of the church and that kind of thing and and or have some familiarity with the tradition of the church and say look this is what christians have believed you know francis chan had this yeah, video yeah. where he said yeah. he started reading this stuff and he's like until 1500 years or for 1500 years so until 500 years ago everyone thought this and that like that weirded me out. How's how 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 is this possible? That that's what all the Christians thought for fifteen hundred years, right? So, I think for sure you've got commonality on trying to take the words of Scripture seriously on this. Uh, you you may have some commonality on engagement with the tradition, theological tradition of the church, and its reflection on this. There's going to be wide variety, uh, as you mentioned, from person to person about what exactly they mean by this, how much of the tradition of the church they would accept or not. Um, and I think then, then the question becomes something like, um, okay, so if we're going to take this seriously, what are the implications? Like, right. does this mean 
something for your practice of it? Does this mean that you need to do some study to figure out what this claim you're making? What's the real content of it and how does it impact the other things you believe? What does this mean for your relationship with a denomination that might not agree with you? Like it leads to a bunch of those kinds of questions, right? But I think the common ground is, is this desire to take the word of scripture seriously. And then in very many cases, a desire to take seriously what Christians through history have, have thought about this, right? Yeah. Because for me, honestly, when I began to look into this as an evangelical, when I went back to the the sources, like, gosh, the Bible, right? I went, well, how did I read this in a different light? Like, how did I read this as not, you know, Christ at his word saying, this is my body, this is my, I mean, it, it it's all very literal. I mean, I guess the word literal is kind of charged in terms of how that's understood in, throughout history, but you take him at his word and, and what Jesus is saying seems pretty, pretty plain. And then Paul also talked, and he seems pretty plain. So, you know, once... Once I began thinking about this in terms of, well, look, these early church fathers all seemed to take Jesus at his word and what he said he meant, it was hard for me to kind of go backwards and go, well, how did I see this as merely a symbol? Like, how did I ever kind of work that out? But there there are lots of people who, who, who are there, right? And right. I, I wonder if maybe the, the flip side of that question is how do we – is it just the early church fathers? Like, how do we begin to ask those people questions to get them to think a little bit deeper, and then and then ask those questions like you're talking about? Like, we'll maybe do a little study and look around and right. find the resources and yeah. So, well, so my guess is if you if you looked at something that you used to read differently and said how how did I read it that way before? It doesn't make sense. Uh, it's not just the words that are different. It's your whole set of lenses has changed. Right, so right. I'm, I'm going to speculate that what happened to you is that you got wind of a sacramental worldview in which these words made sense. But before you didn't have that worldview, so they didn't make sense. So you had to interpret them. You, you needed some interpretive workaround sure. if you didn't have the worldview, right? So so I'm seeing you nodding. So I'm going to that, you know, my, my yeah. hypothesis is probably close, right? So what happened is is some change of, of worldview that got you closer to the worldview that actually produced this belief in the early church in the first place, right? So we talked about the fathers of the church, but but let me say a word or two about Jesus and Paul. Jesus and Paul are Jews who know how to celebrate Passover. And what do Jews do at Passover? They believe that... Th- tonight this very night right this is what you say the young what is the the youngest kid asks the oldest person there like what's what makes tonight different and and the answer is this very night the lord your god brought you out of egypt right and and at passover there was this sense that god's mighty acts were made present to his people today and that's what that's the context in which jesus uh gives us the eucharist is a celebration where Jews uh, believed that God's mighty acts from the past were really present. They didn't have language of real presence, but for our purposes, it's the same kind of thing, right? They, God's mighty deeds were present to us. God, not just mighty deeds, although that's one term from scripture, but saving action, which is really key for us, right? Uh, is present to us when we celebrate this, you know? So um, the, if, if you have a Jewish 
worldview as Jesus and Paul do, then it's not weird to think that you would use a memorial meal format for for communicating something like this, right? And so I think it's it's getting out of our sort of modern and postmodern mindsets uh, and getting into a, an early church or even a Jewish mindset where this is this isn't crazy. This is how the world works. You know, this is how God interacts with His people. This is how God interacts with creation. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. Right again, it comes back to that. That 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 worldview thing, right? The idea that it's not just this simple thing, as you might as you might you know read in the on the face of it. There's a, there's a context for these things, right? There's a and of course that context can be pretty easily found in in the early church. Those who then carried on what we see in the Bible, right? But yeah, I, I and you're absolutely right, right? For me, for me, it was you know I went, oh wait, there are, there are writings that preceded the that, that followed the Bible that were like really close. You know, people that heard from the apostles or taught by the apostles that wrote stuff. So I read the early church fathers, right, and then began to see this strange worldview, which then, of course, informs right. your reading of, of of the Bible. It's yeah, that's that's, that's a great and, point. And we we generally are are blind about our own worldviews. Yeah, right. Yeah, we we yeah. don't know they're there. Like, do, do you know the story about that? There's two young fish swimming along, and the old fish swims by, and he says, "Hey, boys, how's the water?" Yeah, and he <laughs> chuckles and he swims on, and once he's out of earshot, the one young fish turns to the other and says. What the heck's water? Uh, right? We don't know our, our worldviews. Like they're so, they're so, it's like when you forget your, you know, when you're looking for your glasses, you realize yeah. you're wearing your glasses. So you, many you, times, Brett. You forget, you forget <laughs> your, you know, you don't know what lenses you're wearing. Right. And, yeah. and so uh, when, Ooh, when they change, good. things, things change. Right. You know, I think that's fascinating because I have I have a very good Canadian friend. I should say Canadian because we argue, and our arguing is very Canadian arguing, right? So once politely in a while, arguing. yeah, politely yeah. arguing. He's evangelical. We we were we've been friends since before I became Catholic, and we once in a while argue about Catholic Protestant issues. And you know, once every three years, have a really good knockdown, drag out fight, and then don't talk talk about it again for another three years, right? And it's always <laughs> this big. It's great. It's a good relationship that we have. It, it really is fantastic. And our our last big debate was on this idea of of John six, right? And this Eucharist, this real presence. And I was arguing, you know, that look, what do you make of Jesus's words right here, where he seems to speak like quite plainly? How do you in- interpret that? And and his response was, well, I interpret that based on this passage over here from this and this passage over here, you know, and, and essentially got down to, well, the Bible interprets itself. And, and, and I go, but that's a world that that's, that's an interpretive lens you're using. The same way that I'm using the lens of, say, how the early church fathers understood these words. That could be my lens. Your lens is this idea that the Bible can unpack it and unlock itself, right? You're, you're, you're picking that lens. But again, you know, we, we, and of course, he said, "No, no, no. I'm not. That, that's that's the lens you have to use, right? Just the same way I argue. Well, I, my lens is the lens, but right, y- like you said, you, you don't know the water is there that you're swimming in until somebody right. kind of point points it out to you, right? You don't know that you're interpreting these passages a certain a certain way until something makes you realize that, oh yeah, I'm I'm putting my lens." on that thing. Right. 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 Well, and I would, I would even, I would push back against him a little because I mean, Catholics would agree to, to a degree that the Bible does interpret itself. There's a way in which that's true, but the problem is that doesn't actually solve the basic issue about what am I bringing to the text? Um, 
it, I can bring, you know, my own ideas and background and prejudices and whatever to this text in John 3. And then I can bring that to 27 other passages that I can then say, help me to interpret, you know, this thing in John. Well, um, scripture does need to be consonant with itself. If your interpretation of scripture leads scripture into contradiction with itself, then you're doing it wrong. I think we, like that's the negative way of formulating this idea that that scripture interprets itself. But the positive way still begs the question, how do I get myself out of the way as the primary interpreter? Yeah. And, and for that, the Catholic Church is going to say, you need to submit to the living magisterium, right? Uh, that doesn't mean you have no capacity to interpret scripture. It means when a controverted question comes up, you do not have all powerful authority to make a determination. You are, you are responsive to a body given to the church by Christ. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're a, you know, a very skilled theologian or biblical scholar, you can make proposals for novel interpretations that may well teach the church something. God bless you. Go to town. But if those proposals run into difficulty, there is an appropriate place where judgment can be made about whether you've made an authentic contribution or whether you've gone off the rails. And so, yeah, scripture interprets itself to, to a degree, but, but still, what do we do about the fact that I'm the one who's, I'm the one, I don't even know grammatically how to say this. I'm the one scripture interpreting itself. Like, what does that mean? You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a huge rabbit trail, but of course that's the, that's one of those things that drove me to look deeper in the church when I when I realized that, well, there's here's a framework that makes sense. <laughs> you know, when when me and my buddy are disagreeing on scripture, how do we know who is right? How do we arbitrate that? Well, here's an authoritative thing that we can trace back to. We believe as Catholics, Christ founded that says here's the ability to determine what's what's what what's in the deposit of faith. What what he what what he Christ left for us, right? I mean that that for me was. It's an enormously freeing thing that freed me of having to have all the answers. Not that I checked my brain out and didn't have to think, like you said, but that that helped me to know that yes, I'm within this this framework that that has the answers. Right. right. I think that's that's a whole rabbit trail, but that's I think a beautiful part of being Catholic is that 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 freedom. Right. 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 No. And I, I think what you've just articulated is, is a common experience of people who've gone through yeah. th this kind of search is is to find freedom from the like endlessly tossing waves of doctrinal dispute. I mean, we still have doctrinal dispute to to a degree in the Catholic Church, but it has it has a resolution and an end game. Yeah. You know, like transubstantiation emerged from doctrinal dispute. And then it resolved. And at the Reformation, they had the same fight 300 years later, and it's never been resolved. You know, um, so I, I, there's that mechanism for making, making the thing work, you know? Yeah, which I think is just beautiful. So my last question for you is, is this, to kind of bring it back home. Why is this important? Like, why is transubstantiation or even the, the real presence, if you want to go, it depends, I don't know how, how deep you mm -hmm. want to go into this, but why... Why does that matter? Because I know I look at, at these stats, you've, you've seen them too, and, and listeners who are astute looking into the Catholic Church or Catholics would know this, that less and less Catholics believe in the real presence, that transplantation is happening. Like, there's a bit of a crisis within the Church of, of understanding this. 
that's one direction we could take this question. And for Catholics, why is it important? But even for the wider swath of Christianity, why why is this important? Like, why right. does it matter? Yeah, and I'm thinking of two different kinds of answers, right? There's the, there's the sort of like, why does it matter for the Christian life answer? Yeah. And then why does the idea matter? So I'll, I'll try to say a little bit about each, right? So why did, I mean, why does it matter for the Christian life? I, and I, I've hinted at this before, right? I mean, this is where God gives himself to us. Yeah. It's a place of encounter that is sort of unparalleled. There's, there's not, there, there's no saying there's no other places of encounter with God, but this is a kind of privileged, promised place of encounter with God. Uh, and if we don't um, learn how to value that, we're we're missing we're missing out on on the biggest gift God could give us, uh, and. More than that, we're more likely to miss the other gifts. It's not like, oh, well, you know, we'll we'll encounter God in nature. Great. Encounter God in nature. I'm all for it, really. I mean, it's wonderful. I think you can encounter God in nature better if you've learned how to receive his gifts in the Eucharist. Right? I don't think it's, you know... uh, One or the other, right? So, so that, you know, why does it matter? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's an intimate encounter with God who gives himself to you. Like, I, I wonder if we even know that that we, if we don't have an experience of what that means, that might sound like empty words. And so one of the things about the Eucharist is experiential. So, so Catholics who go to adoration will, will often just have a sense of God's presence there, but then also in their lives, that's hard to get anywhere else. And so like, all, all I can say is like, give it a shot. Yeah. Like, like if you want to see if it's important, go try it. See, see what happens. You know, I like, I'm confident that God shows up for these things. So I'm, I'm confident telling you to give it a try. And I think something is likely to happen. So, that, okay. So that's on the, that's on the experiential level. Like, why does it matter for Christian? Like now let's think about it as an idea, right? Cause that's, I'm a theologian. I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> I think it, it really goes to this question of what we think is real at all. I think I think a belief in real presence, uh, that God can give himself to us at this level that's not physical. You know, we live in a material well, okay, we, we not only live in a materialist world, we live we live in a world that's that's really confused right now, and we see a lot of public debate that's confused on these two points. On the one hand, reality is purely material. And everything else is kind of ephemeral, you know, made up. On the other hand, reality means whatever the heck you want it to mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, these two things don't fit very well, which is interesting. This is one of the reasons why the new atheists end up agreeing with Christians on some points. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like, the, you know, have you noticed the new the new atheists have recently become terribly politically incorrect? Um, and And Christians are like, oh, they're saying the odd thing that I think I agree with. And it's because the new atheists are materialists. So they, they don't go all the way with this, you know, reality is whatever you make up kind of idea. Right. And, but a Christian worldview uh, rejects materialism, but it also rejects the idea that, that reality is purely subjective. It says reality is objective, but, but objective, not only at the level of physical reality, but the, at the level of meaning. Right, which is what we're talking about when we're talking about things like truth or or the soul or what. Right, we're talking. We're not talking about 
you know, merely physical things. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, the tradition would say these merely physical things are in a certain sense, less real, you know? Um, so I think real presence is kind of a bulwark against both a kind of subjectivism on the one hand, uh, and a kind of, um, naive materialism on the other hand. And I think both of those worldviews are, well, I think they're finally incoherent. And I think we're, we're watching, okay, let me be dramatic for a second. I think we're actually watching the death throes of a culture that doesn't know how to think. And, and those two worldviews are deeply implicated in our failure to think. Um, so I think real presence is part of a worldview that's actually coherent and satisfying for thinking about nature, humanity, God, I would go, I would say politics, science, like all that kind of stuff. You can think about it better if you're not a naive materialist or a pure subjectivist. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Spoken like a real theologian, right? And of course, <laughs> it's that, it's, the logic is that extension of the incarnation, which I think is I think makes a lot of sense for the evangelical, like for that the non-sacramental Christian. It, it's simply an extension of of the incarnation. All these all these, these sacraments, like the the right at the center of my life as a as a Roman Catholic is the incarnation, and everything flows out from there very coherently, right? And and, and I think I think in general. You know, Catholics shouldn't view Protestantism as this thing that's just got a bunch of stuff wrong. I think Protestantism has a lot, a lot of key insights that Protestantism doesn't always follow through to its own conclusions. And I, I, I actually ended up making an argument that I was not expecting to make when I started writing the book. At the end of the book, I was convinced by my research that transubstantiation would help Protestants. Yeah understand one another. And I mean, specifically, I make the case that Lutherans and Calvinists who had, who had sort of fallen apart on this point it, late in the, late in the Reformation. I don't know what counts as late, but later, like after Luther and Zwingli were dead later, um, uh, I, I make the case that transubstantiation would actually help Protestants say what both sides were trying to say, but couldn't say given the categories they were working with at the time and the political and all the other stuff that was messing it up. Right. Um, and I think that happens more often than we, than we're given to expect that Protestantism has a key insight that's right. And that it finds its expression actually in Catholic doctrine or practice in a way that it's not expecting. Um, so, and we talked about this with priesthood of all believers too, or the one sacrifice of Christ, or, you know, there, it happens, I, I think, with surprising regularity that the real insights of Protestantism, the genuine insights of Protestantism, fit in a Catholic worldview and actually highlight elements of a Catholic worldview that deserve to be highlighted. Yeah, absolutely. I had a I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, a good friend Rod Bennett, who's a convert and an and author, early church historian. He said, you know, both of us, evangelicals and Catholics, are are missing things that each other brings to the table. Like part of the disunity of the of the church as a whole means that evangelicals have something to to bring that we need that we're missing that, and and vice versa. So what you said there, really, you know, for me underscores that. Like there's there's a logic in 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 that 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 highlights things that, that we, that we as Catholics, you know, celebrate or, or, or believe in. I think that's, that's, right. fantastic. that's fantastic. 
if I can make a plug for the book at the end, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think, a, I think a Protestant would, I, I hope, and, and I know from Protestants who've read it, who this has happened for would find in it a, a deep respect for their own Protestant tradition. And I challenge it at points, but I, I deeply respect it, but that I draw out what I think Luther and Calvin in particular get right and, and show that that's compatible with, with the Catholic truth as I understand it. Not just yeah. as I understand it, but as as I, I understand it to be articulated in in the official teaching of the church, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you do a fantastic job with that, I, I should add. So tell our guests, I mean, this has been fantastic. I love having you in the show. You will be a return guest, I'm sure, if you'll bear me again, because there's a lot we can talk about on this subject and many other things that you've you've done and, and written on. And this is this is a Glad I had to join of, you again. Yeah, for sure. I, had, I had a lot of fun. So, uh, for own selfish, my own selfish reasons, I want to I want to have you back. But uh, where can people go to to find this book to to follow you? Uh, where do you want to point them towards? Because yeah. now, now's the time. Tell them. So for the book, I, I I strongly encourage people like support your local Catholic or Christian bookstore. Uh, if it, and if they learn that the book is something they want to keep on the shelves, then that helps, you know, that helps other people find it too. Yeah. Um, if you don't, if you don't have access to, to a bookstore that you can support, order it from the publisher, or if you're in Canada, order it through their Canadian distributor or, or something. So the, the publisher is Baker academic, um, it, Amazon like kills book publishers and <laughs> authors. So if you want to support, authors and publishers that are sporting that are producing good, you know, theological uh, Christian works, uh, buy from, buy from publishers. If you can't buy from bookstores or buy from authors, uh, you know, uh, authors can, can be the best wholesalers of their own work. So, um, so that's, that's, that's not just for my book, that's for any book, but, but for my book, go to Baker academic and, and look for, look for it there. Um, uh, other things I do check out my podcast, thinking faith, we've got like, how many episodes do we have 300 episodes? It's a lot. And it's, and it's fantastic. I should say wonderful podcast. I love it. Awesome. So check out thinking faith, wherever you get podcasts, uh, and uh, do all the things that Keith said to do at the beginning of this show. Cause we don't do it. We're, we're not techie. We don't do enough to, to like work the algorithm to, to know how to do that. So, uh, check out the podcast. Uh, just search me on YouTube. I've been interviewed on a lot of different YouTube channels. I even have my own YouTube channel, which has like three or four talks I've given, but, but, uh, I've, I've been interviewed on a lot of different YouTube channels. So you can find me on YouTube and I write, uh, quite a bit. Um, most of my recent writing has been at church life journal. Uh, so check, check out church life journal. But I, uh, I mean, if you Google me, you'll find my writings, a word on fire, pray tell crux, um, I'm probably forgetting a few. I have a few things coming out on our Sunday visitors website soon. Um, yeah. I need to make a website where this is all in one place. That's one of my plans for the new year, but I have no tech skills. So I don't know when that's going to happen. <laughs> well, good luck with that. You have to maintain it also afterwards once you make it. Oh, that's the no, challenge. what I'm going to do is I'm going to have, I'm going to make it and then it will be dated 2022 forevermore because yeah. yeah. it will never be maintained <laughs> that's fantastic well i'll put links to all those things in the show notes people can find you it's fantastic stuff uh truly thank you for being here uh, this has been a real pleasure a lot of fun i want to say thank you i want to say god bless you and the work you're doing for the church it's fantastic so thank you and uh yeah thanks for being here 
Great to meet you, Keith. I, I'm more than happy to come back uh, when it makes sense. Uh, thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Careful what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, friends, there you have it. A new friend was made in this episode, I think. (laughs) Brett and I hit it off so well before, after, during the show. Definitely will have him back for further conversations. He has books on purgatory, books on the Marian doctrines and and dogmas, and his role as as an evangelical outreach theologian in in the Catholic Church is a fantastic position and a great person to have on this program to continue these kinds of conversations. That's just fantastic. TheCordialCatholic.com is our website. We're at CordialCatholic on Instagram and Twitter. The Cordial Catholic on Facebook. And please do send your emails to CordialCatholic at gmail.com. I get lots of emails and write back to them as soon as I can. I promise I do get back to those. They sit there in my inbox waiting to be responded to. And I, as soon as I can, I will get back to you. So please keep on writing. Please do leave a rating and a review for this show if you can. You now can rate shows on Spotify. So if you're listening on Spotify, thank you. And please leave a rating for this show so other people can find it. That would be fantastic. And of course, your iTunes or Apple podcast reviews go a long way to pushing this podcast out to new people. So thank you for those as well, we're on YouTube at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. And of course, we're on Patreon and PayPal if you want to support this show. Patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thank you for listening, guys. Talk to you again next week. Please pray for me. Know that I'm praying for you as well each and every day. And thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Stay safe and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.